This is the third lecture of Innovate 103, entitled Human and Machine Learning. It starts with a summary of the history of AI from the 1970s to the present, following last week's lecture on the history before the first AI winter. Then it turns to the key psychological questions behind AI. Should we model our machines on the mind? or on the brain? What does it mean to understand? And in what ways is AI already better than us? And in what ways is it vulnerable? Once again, it's possible to simply listen to this lecture on the go, but I'd highly encourage you to look these ideas up. You'll get a lot more out of it that way. Let's get started. Part 1 the seasons, they go round and round. We last left off in 1973. James Lighthill had just slashed funding for most AI research centers in the UK. DARPA was getting tired of funding researchers who promised human-level intelligence in a decade, but only delivered party-trick chatbots. Marvin Minsky wrote a book that made perceptrons look like a joke. This is not to say that the 20 years prior didn't see any successes. Far from it. Computers had been pushed to new limits in their capacity to process language, play games, implement logic, and interface with humans. The physical infrastructure of computers was advancing at a rapid rate. Devices that took up an entire office wing in the 1940s were now desk-sized and often even portable by the 1970s. These were the early days of Silicon Valley, and the low-hanging fruit was being plucked from every Palo Alto treetop. This period saw the invention of the laser printer, computer graphics, the mouse, the concept of a personal computer, and the internet originally called the ARPANET and designed to link academic and military computing centers in the United States. Progress was especially quick at the offices of Xerox, the Palo Alto Research Center, or PARC, which hired top talent from nearby Stanford University, NASA, the Department of Defense, and the U.S. Air Force. There was also neck-breaking progress in the infrastructure of computing. Computing operates on binary code, which is often represented in electric signals, on or off, zero or one. The physical manifestation of those zeros and ones has changed dramatically. First, it was bulky vacuum tubes, Small, cylindrical, glass-encased bulbs you might have seen powering guitar amplifiers, which make use of some basic principles you might remember from high school physics. There's a circuit with a gap, on either side of which are two physically separated electrically charged plates. When one plate is heated, electrons can flow across this gap, so that heat can act as an on-off switch. In 1947, researchers at Bell Labs introduced the transistor. Instead of relying on a physical gap in space, transistors make use of gaps in the crystalline structure of matter itself. 
Now, researchers could manipulate electrons in materials called semiconductors to create atomic switches and amplifiers. Within a decade, we had integrated circuits, a small chip typically made of silicon that could house hundreds, thousands, millions, or even billions of transistors. In particular, the invention of the metal oxide semiconductor field effect transistor, or MOSFET for short, in 1959 by Mohammed Atala and Dewan Kang at Bell Labs, truly changed the game. You could very legitimately argue that this invention, more than anything else, enabled the rise of the computer to their present status over the past half century. They are, by far, the most manufactured electronic device in history, with over 13 sextillion produced. That's 10 with 22 zeros after it. The manufacturing process involved in building these ever-smaller chips is truly one of the great achievements of 20th century science and industry. Don't believe me? Look up ultraviolet lithography and take a look at the facilities in which these things are manufactured. It is truly impossible to get your mind around the fact that we humans actually invented this stuff. And, and, and I'm going to pause from the script here to say that really you should be looking up the facilities in which these integrated circuits, chips, and transistors are being made. I, I mean, this is the stuff of science fiction and beyond, uh, and it really is mesmerizing. In 1965, one of the architects of this hardware revolution, Gordon Moore, reflected on the amazing progress and noted that the number of components per integrated circuit was roughly doubling every year. He predicted that this trend would last another decade. At the end of that decade, he predicted the trend would continue with a doubling period of every two years. Moore's law then turned from an insightful prediction to an industry benchmark. The semiconductor research and manufacturing industry uses a target of two-year chip density doubling to structure its research, and so far it's worked according to plan. Every year there are predictions about Moore's Law coming to an end, but every year they have been proven incorrect as IBM or Intel or NVIDIA comes out with a new chip that matches or outpaces the predictions. This progress cannot continue indefinitely because there will likely be some sort of size limit as transistors start to bump into quantum mechanical problems, but it's not clear when that fundamental size limit will actually take place. So, while computing as a whole was thriving in the 1970s, AI as a subset of computing was lying dormant. The founders of the field were still working in their respective labs, McCarthy, now at Stanford, Minsky at MIT, Newell, Simon, and Shaw at Carnegie Mellon. But there was hardly the robust international research community there had been earlier. But within a few years, by 1980, funding and enthusiasm would eventually come pouring back. Winter turns to summer eventually. And what else could have caused it than the one thing aside from war itself, 
that most reliably shakes the U.S. government into action. Jealousy. This time, the country that stirred the U.S. into force was not the Soviet Union, but Japan. In 1982, the Japanese Ministry of International Trade and Industry announced the so-called Fifth Generation Computing Project. The fifth generation simply referred to improvements in hardware we've already discussed. From vacuum tubes to transistors to integrated circuits to computer-on-a-chip microprocessors to, Japan envisioned, massive parallel processing computers capable of logical reasoning. Within the decade, Japan promised it would develop an epoch-making supercomputer with unparalleled AI capabilities. The United States, never one to be outdone in technological progress, responded with its strategic computing initiative, whose goal was no less than full human-level intelligence by the 1990s. The UK, still seeking to be competitive, but never one for bombastic names, had the Alvey program, named after its director, John Alvey, which invested in microprocessors, AI, software, and improved human-computer interfaces. What exactly were these countries investing in in the 1980s? The newest fashion in AI had become the idea of an expert system, which is most associated with the work of Stanford professor Ed Feigenbaum. Computers were being reconceptualized, from devices whose strength lay in solving logical puzzles and doing language translation, to devices that could assist human experts like chemists, doctors, or radiologists. The idea behind an expert system was twofold. First, the computer should contain knowledge, like the kind found in a medical textbook. And second, it should contain rules of logical inference and heuristics rules of thumb on how to apply its knowledge. An artificial expert dentist, for instance, might be imbued with the knowledge of what it means for a tooth to be carious and cavitated, then have the instruction, if carious and cavitated, then excavate. To be clear, I personally gained this knowledge from an expert dentist friend. The people programming expert systems envisioned real human professionals transmitting their knowledge into a computing system, thereby creating computerized assistance. One thing to realize that's unique here is that expert systems were meant to have explicit representations of this knowledge. Contrast this to Siri, which looks things up on the internet in response to a prompt, or a perceptron, which represents information distributed across nodes in a neural network. An expert system, by contrast, is a computer which, in an attempt to assist an expert marine biologist, has stored in its memory the resting heart rate of a beluga whale and what to do when one washes ashore. While there were, of course, never computers that could replace human experts, and while there were many easy jokes to be made at the concept's expense, for instance, a book by sociologist of science Harry Collins called Artificial Experts, many expert systems became widely successful. One, 
called XCON, made it dramatically easier to order computers to the specification a customer desired. Another, called Dendrol, helped organic chemists. Many of these systems are now so integrated into our idea of computing that we don't even call them AI anymore. What was once a revolutionary AI system in 1933 is just TurboTax today. This was best summed up by Larry Tesler, who worked at Xerox Park, when he said, AI is whatever hasn't been done yet. As soon as an AI program is written that can solve basic chemistry problems, it's no longer an AI. It's just software. The central thesis behind the expert systems of the 1980s was that knowledge was the key to human cognition. But just as symbolic logic was not enough to produce human-level computers in the 60s, so knowledge was destined for disappointment. By the end of the 80s, the funding agencies were once again underwhelmed and the cash started receding back again and being diverted to more productive sectors like hardware development. If you were an investor in the mid-1980s, would you be giving your money to people who believed, without much evidence, that doctors' knowledge could be fully encapsulated in an expert system by the decade's end? Or... Would you rather invest in the hardware manufacturers at Intel, computer builders at IBM, and software creators at Microsoft, whose products were giving rise to a global computing revolution? Winter was coming. The 1990s were once again a low period in AI research, with few large-scale projects and a lack of new talent in the field. Of course, many researchers were still working around the world on AI-like technologies, but gone were the radio programs, television specials, and newspaper headlines about AI. Young computer scientists likely would have been advised to stay away from the field, and if they did choose to pursue it, they would have avoided the term artificial intelligence in favor of the more down-to-earth natural language processing, or cognitive systems, or even simply informatics, or just statistics. That being said, this period also saw the early AI researchers' chess dreams come true. Scientists at Carnegie Mellon and IBM built a chess computer called Deep Thought, named after the character from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy which steadily improved its play throughout the 1990s, achieving grandmaster-level play by 1996, though it was still unable to achieve the highest peak, beating a reigning world champion. That distinction would go to Deep Thought's successor, Deep Blue. Deep Blue first played a six-game match against Garry Kasparov, arguably the greatest chess player in history, in 1996. The computer won the first game, but Kasparov won three and drew two of the next five games, handily beating Deep Blue in their six-game match. But the following year, an upgraded Deep Blue narrowly beat Kasparov in another six-game match, ushering in our present era of computer chess supremacy. What are we to make of all this? Should we be impressed by it? Fearful of it? 
Disappointed that a 10-year prediction really played out in a 40-year slog? What should we make of the people who said that solving chess would be tantamount to cracking human intellect itself? Well, it's tricky. On the one hand, beating a human at chess is a genuinely impressive feat for any machine. But on the other hand, Deep Blue can tell us absolutely nothing about human intelligence or the brain. It's simply a device that searches game trees the good old-fashioned way devised by Shannon, von Neumann, Turing, and others as early as the 1940s, and it uses complicated mathematical rules and a vast bank of stored games to select which branch of the game tree to pursue. It's a brute force search machine whose insights come from massive computing power and the capacity to store in its memory every winning chess game ever played. The deep in deep blue is therefore quite misleading. This machine is not profound or discerning or wise or hashtag deep. And yet, we are currently in the midst of another AI hype cycle based on another deep idea, one with its origins in the 1980s. After relative quiet in the 90s and early 2000s, this new technology came bursting onto the scene, big data in one hand, computing power in the other, ready to bring spring and summer back to AI to heights even bigger than its peaks in the 60s and 80s. I am, of course, speaking about a term you've heard many times before, but whose name alone will take 15 minutes of unpacking. Deep learning. Part 2. A Shallow Dive into Deep Learning What is a neural network? Here's the basic idea, and by the way, I would highly recommend supplementing the description I give here with the three blue, one brown video series on this topic, if only just for the visuals. I'm going to do my best to be able to describe this in words, but it truly is helpful to be able to watch a neural network on the screen. A neural network is a complicated mathematical function that converts an input, such as the pixels making up an image, or the shape of an auditory waveform into a useful output, like the caption on a picture or the word that was spoken. The network is fed millions of tidbits of information in the input, computes thousands of weighted combination of those inputs, and then guesses at an appropriate output. Starting out, you should visualize a neural network as a black box with a gazillion knobs and dials and tweakable parameters inside. There are two main steps involved in tuning this black box into something useful. The first is the training stage. What this simply means is that the neural network is fed a whole bunch of inputs, say, images of handwritten digits, and makes a guess at an output what number those handwritten pictures represent. Based on whether the guess is correct or incorrect, 
The knobs and dials inside of this black box are readjusted according to some preset mathematical rules in order to make the guess closer to the true answer. The system is then fed a new input and the weights are readjusted again. This training process might continue hundreds, thousands, or millions of times until we have a mathematical model that produces accurate guesses. The second stage of this process is the testing stage. The neural network is presented with inputs it's never seen before, say some new handwritten digit, and asked to produce a new guess. How the neural network performs in the testing stage is how we assess its accuracy as a mathematical model. This general idea of neural networks and machine learning has been fairly fixed for the last 50 years. What's changed is the structure of the networks themselves, the number of transformations the data undergoes between input and output, the mathematical formulas for how the knobs, dials, and weights inside the black box should be adjusted in response to training examples, and the sheer quantity of connections in the network. All of this made possible in the 21st century by Moore's Law and an abundance of data. When Marvin Minsky and Seymour Papert wrote the book Perceptrons, they were trashing the idea of a single-layer neural network. That is, a neural network where the input data is subjected to only one set of knobs and dials, which I'll refer to from here on out as weights, before they become the output. Minsky and Papert's argument truly did expose some big flaws in these single-layer networks. Flaws whose explanations require visuals and mathematics I'm unable to provide here, but you can look up the XOR problem to dig in more. But what if you added more layers to the network? In other words, what if the data could undergo multiple transformations between input and output? Now, instead of a function that takes as input say, a hundred pixels of an image, and can only make one calculation before guessing at what picture it's seeing, we've now got a function that can take those a hundred pixels and transform them in multiple ways, this input data undergoing multiple black boxes of adjusted weights before outputting an answer. Minsky and Papert simply assumed that these multi-layered networks would have the same problems that single-layered networks would. And they were downright wrong. Multi-layered neural networks, or as we now call it, deep learning, have proved to be one of the most successful technologies of the last 20 years. Here, in brief, is their story. After the book Perceptrons, research into neural networks all but abated. Minsky and Papert were well-respected, perceptrons weren't making much progress, and there wasn't much else to do. But the idea, the dream, of building a computer modeled on the human brain, that's powerful stuff. And to a few rogue mathematicians and computer scientists, once they got that goal in their head, they were unable to focus on anything else. 
And boy, was that goal in the head of one particular British scientist. Cambridge-educated, polymathic, eccentric, tall, gangly, literally unable to sit down due to a bulging spinal disc, Jeffrey Everest Hinton was the great-great-grandson of one of the founders of mathematical logic, George Boole. He received his middle name, Everest, from the Surveyor General of India, who mapped out the world's highest peak. His great-grandfather invented the Tesseract, and another relative invented the Jungle Gym. As Hinton was leaving graduate school trained as a psychologist, he was beginning to summit his own peak of sorts. A 30-year conviction in the feasibility of neural networks in an academic community that was convinced of their inadequacy. He faced ridicule, even from his advisor, who told him he was wasting his time with neural networks. Unable to find work in artificial intelligence in the UK, Hinton moved to the United States. But he quickly grew uncomfortable with the Department of Defense's role in scientific funding and instead took a position at the University of Toronto in the 1980s. We will speak a bit more about this next week when we discuss the forces that have led to Canada's role as a global AI hub. For the next 30 years, Hinton was a magnet, pulling together researchers from all around the world who were interested in neural networks. He attracted all of the top students because those students really had few other options if they were interested in the subject. Along the way, he was a part of a number of breakthroughs. In the 1980s, for instance, he helped introduce the idea of backpropagation, an improved way of training multi-layered neural networks that is now taught within the first week of many contemporary courses on the subject. In the 90s, he made important contributions to the theory of unsupervised learning, the branch of machine learning which feeds neural networks unlabeled data and allows the network itself to detect patterns in that data. We have also already discussed the story of how, in 2012, Hinton's group decisively won the ImageNet competition with AlexNet. But perhaps Hinton's most important contribution to the field is as a mentor. He supervised, and well into his 70s, continues to supervise many of the top researchers in the field. One such researcher was a Frenchman named Jan Lacoon, who was a postdoc at U of T in the 1980s. After leaving Hinton's lab, Lacoon started making regular appearances at an unusual place for an AI scientist. NIST the National Institute of Standards and Technology, a U.S. government body responsible for tasks like housing the official atomic clock that defines the second and running the National Conference on Weights and Measures. In the early 90s, NIST started a massive project to scan and digitize a database of handwritten digits taken from U.S. census forms. High school students and government interns would scan those forms and label, one by one, the digits on the screen. The purpose of this tortuous exercise was to generate a data set 
that could be used to train a machine learning model that can improve object detection technology for the Department of Defense and check processing by banks. This handwritten numbers dataset came to be called MNIST for modified NIST, and it was the catalyst for a huge amount of neural networks progress in the 1990s. In particular, Jan LeCun and his collaborators, including another Canadian, Joshua Bengio, invented a technique called convolution, which dramatically improved image recognition performance on MNIST. To this day, many introductory machine learning classes begin with a demonstration on how to write a program that labels U.S. Census Bureau handwritten digits. At this point, we are now veering away from history, and we are into the present. In the 2010s, machine learning is in full hype mode, and news-making discoveries are happening on a monthly basis. In 2011, an IBM program called Watson beat our finest Jeopardy players on live TV. In 2012, a neural network developed by Google was fed YouTube videos, and the network's weights were tuned to recognize cats with no human input. Mid-decade, Apple, Google, and Amazon used natural language processing to create virtual assistants that people welcomed into their homes. In 2016, a system called AlphaGo, developed by Google's subsidiary DeepMind, used deep learning and another technique called reinforcement learning to beat the world's strongest Go player, Lee Sedol. Go is an unfathomably complicated game. Its game trees many universes of orders of magnitude more vast than chess. And many pundits thought it would be decades before computers could beat the top humans. I want to pause here once again and emphasize how truly gargantuan the game of Go is. I spoke in the previous lecture a bit about how long it would take if every human who'd ever lived every second from the beginning of the universe to the present played a chess game. We'd only have, you know, 0.000501% of chess games played. Go is like that, um, except instead of imagining every human playing a chess game every second from the beginning of the universe to the present, we imagine every atom within the human playing a game of Go. Similarly, we will only have played a fraction of the total possible Go games. A year after its victory over Lee Sedol, DeepMind released a new version of the game-playing system called AlphaZero, which learned how to play the games of Go, Chess, and Shogi simply by playing against itself. It started off knowing only the rules of the game and would play against itself, making moves seemingly at random, but had the ability to recall which moves led to favorable outcomes. Over time, it would start making those favorable moves more and more, but still occasionally play randomly. After tens or hundreds of thousands of rounds of play, it takes the best from its best games, ditches the worst from its worst games, and what's left is by far the strongest board game player, human or machine, in the world. 
The incredible thing about AlphaZero is that because it's not constrained by past human play, since it's never seen a single human game of chess or Go, it was able to teach the top players in those games new techniques they'd never seen before. So, after all of this progress, where are we? When we turn back to Alan Turing's question from the 1950s, do we have any sense of whether machines can think? Can neural networks think? Or even more simply, can neural networks tell us anything about cognition, visual perception, language? To answer this question, we must now venture out of history and into a new realm, psychology. Part 3. Building Brains and Building Minds The human brain is without a doubt the most impressive thing in the universe. Maybe this is a biased statement because it is a human brain that is causing me to even say these words, but I find it impossible to overstate just how cool the brain is. It is simultaneously coordinating the motor control of your limbs, storing all of your life's memories, running your executive function to direct your attention and working memory, plan for the future, is responsible for every experience of pain, pleasure, fear, and joy you've ever had, and is capable of reason, logic, mathematics, art, empathy, sympathy, and so much more. And all of this, the collective embodiment of all conscious experience, is happening in an organ that weighs less than your laptop and is smaller than a bowling ball. There are many different levels at which we can understand how the brain works. For any given behavior, say, laughing when remembering a funny event that happened to you, we can ask, what was happening in the brain which neurons were firing? Which subcortical structures were responsible for the reflective smile of laughter, the contracting and relaxing of facial muscles? And the memory of that funny event, how does that work? Did that event happen recently, in which case it's considered a short-term memory? Or is it from your youth, in which case it would be stored as explicit episodic memory? We might ask how that type of memory differs cognitively from other memories, like memory of how to perform a task or memory of facts from a textbook. We can zoom out even further and think about laughter as correlated with your general mood and emotions. What factors, both in your brain and in your life, are contributing to your happiness? Maybe you're taking an antidepressant. Maybe you're just having a good week. We can zoom out even further. What does your culture consider funny? How does the environment in which you were raised affect your propensity to laugh? Or we can go even further back and think about laughter itself as a human universal, which perhaps arose due to some sort of evolutionary advantage. What forces in nature led to the existence of laughter in the first place? And how did those structures end up in the brains and genes of our ancestors? There is no one way of understanding the complexity of cognition. 
The brain must be understood from the biological, neurophysiological, psychological, cognitive, cultural, and evolutionary perspectives all at once. But how can we translate these different levels of understanding into our machines? One school of thought says that the brain is best understood at the level of the neuron, and so our computer programs should be modeled on neural networks. As a philosophical idea, this position is often called connectionism. The language of connectionism has changed quite a bit over time. We've already seen that the first neural network was called the perceptron. In the 1980s, researchers spoke about parallel distributed processing. Parallel because neural networks involve lots of calculations happening in tandem. And distributed because when a neural network is inputted an image, it breaks it down into all its component pixels rather than viewing the image as a single whole entity. The architects of parallel distributed processing viewed themselves not merely as computer programmers, but as cognitive psychologists, and saw their work as able to explain how children learn languages, how brains process images, and much more. Just look at the titles of their books. Parallel Distributed Processing, Experiments in the Microstructure of Cognition, and Physical and Biological Models. But what about the non-connectionists? What about the people like John McCarthy and Herb Simon and the expert systems folks who thought that computer programs should have explicit knowledge about the world or the ability to reason logically rather than simply learning correlations through training a neural network? Or, more to the point, what about the position that when we build computers— we should think not about the brain with its neural connections, but rather we should think about the mind with its ability to reason, draw inferences, and form categories for concepts. This view is sometimes called computationalism or is referred to as a symbolic or logic-based approach. The differences between these two approaches connectionism versus computationalism, neural networks versus symbolic approaches, is best understood if we take a simple example, such as the acquisition of language. In particular, how do children learn how to conjugate verbs into the past tense? The connectionist might say, as infants grow up, they hear hundreds of verbs every day, with many, many examples, they might become attuned to patterns in those verbs, which could be modeled by a neural network, with different units in the network being activated for different verb inputs. After a year or two of life, the child will begin speaking verbs of their own and have the ability to conjugate them based on words they'd heard from adults and patterns they'd picked up over time. On the other hand, a proponent of symbolic ideas might propose that the human brain is primed to pick up on certain rules of language. The human mind comes equipped with a mechanism for understanding the structure of language, 
And that includes rules about how to conjugate verbs. So, infants quickly grasp that, in English, the rule for putting a verb into the past tense is simply to add ed to the end. So, what children initially have is this one simple rule, add ed. But this will cause them to make mistakes, like saying, we goed to the park instead of went. According to the symbolists, these irregular verb forms must be memorized independently of the general universal rule. There is much, much more to be said about this debate, but I will hold off for now because I'm excited to share that one of the people who was a key player in this academic kerfuffle in the 1980s, Dr. Steven Pinker, will be sitting down with me in a couple of weeks to discuss these ideas. There is also a third view at play here called behaviorism, which argues that all human behavior should be understood through the lens of responding to rewards and punishments. Actions which are rewarded will become more frequent over time, while actions that are punished will stop. You've likely heard of Pavlovian conditioning, the capacity to make dogs salivate in response to a sound because they know that food is coming. This is classic behaviorism, understanding the world through stimulus and response. As we've discussed, Alpha Zero is based on this concept, since it's designed to reward high-quality play in chess and go and punish poor play. However, Behaviorism is something of a discredited idea in psychology, and while reinforcement learning has been massively successful, it has somewhat departed from its original psychological roots. Either way, the symbolic versus connectionist debate rages to this day. In order to understand why, we must ask the question, after 50 years of work in neural networks and many major successes, how do they stack up against humans? Let's first talk about some of the incredible strengths of our present computing systems. For one, they are fast. Computers work through electrical signals that travel at the speed of light, 300 million meters per second. The speed of light is freaking fast. The human brain, by contrast, operates at the speed of neural signals, which can go up to 120 meters per second. That's a two and a half million fold difference. What this means is that once a convolutional neural network is trained to label handwritten digits, it will be able to do so at a million fold the speed of humans. And once it's achieved superhuman recognition abilities, there's no going back. Computers simply have us beat. This, of course, is why we have machines that digitize our books and scan our checks. Computers also never get bored or tired or sloppy, whereas humans reliably do all three. Similarly, AI has shown us that despite our best efforts, humans have a lot to learn about difficult games like Go and chess. Now that algorithms can play these games, they will always be superior to human-level skill. 
There are countless other ways that AI and computers have surpassed human abilities. If you've ever seen a video of industrial robots assembling a car, and I highly, highly recommend you do, you'll recognize that this is unfathomably better than humans assembling cars piece by piece. If you've ever used Google Translate to turn an entire book or website into a new language, you'll know how much easier that is than looking up each word or sentence by hand. And to use a slightly different example of computer superiority, computers are completely immune to optical illusions. When you give a computer a test like, which of these two lines is longer, with all sorts of tricks of perspective that fool humans, the computer doesn't care. It measures the pixel values of the two lines and tells you which one is longer. Simple as that. But in spite of these successes, computers lack the fundamental thing that makes human cognition special. Understanding. To a computer, an image is no more than the sum total of its pixel values, an audio clip no more than just a waveform. Think about how different that is from how you, a human, sees and hears. When you look at a picture of a dog on a screen, you see anything but the pixel values that make it up. You see how cute it is, how nice it is, what a good boy it is, but you hardly pay any mind to the individual pixels. That's because you understand what a dog is. You have the capacity to symbolically represent the concept of a dog in your mind and reason about its actions, its behaviors, and its intentions. You can develop a theory of mind, the ability to impute thoughts to the dog, to wonder what it's thinking. At present, computers cannot do any of this, and that leaves them quite vulnerable. One example of such a vulnerability is called an adversarial attack. The way such an attack works is as follows. Take an image, say, of a banana, which a computer vision system might be able to classify with near total certainty as being a banana. But then you can model the pixel values of that banana image an imperceptible amount, certainly not enough to be noticed by a human, but enough and precisely in a way to trick the computer vision system into thinking it's looking at something completely different. For instance, there might be a way to modify every pixel so that the computer guesses with total certainty it's looking at a fire truck or a picture of Betty White. And just to pause and emphasize this point, you can look up adversarial attacks and what you'll see is a picture of a banana that a computer reliably classifies as a banana, and then you'll see the addition to that picture of some imperceptibly small changes on the pixel-by-pixel -pixel level that leaves it looking to you still like a banana, but the computer now gets it completely wrong. Another interesting example of this is something called the adversarial patch, which is a tiny physical patch, like a little button, that you can put in the frame of an image to confuse a vision system into thinking it's looking at, say, a toaster, no matter what else is in the frame. 
The reason this is possible, of course, is because no computer vision system on Earth understands what it's looking at. It doesn't know what a banana is. It has a very strong pattern-matched numerical correlation of the set of pixels that most often constitute a banana, but no inherent concept of a banana. And just to think briefly about the reason why such things might be a vulnerability or harmful for machine learning systems, imagine putting an adversarial patch on a stop sign and the cameras in a self-driving car thinking that a stop sign is in fact a yield sign. Or imagine a system that is able to produce an adversarial attack by modifying an audio form to make it sound to the computer like something different is being stated, perhaps a different person's voice. These are real-life threats that computer security experts are working on now. Another example that illustrates this lack of understanding is GPT-2, a language-generating system released by OpenAI last year. The idea behind GPT-2 is that it is inputted a gargantuan amount of text, several dozen gigabytes worth, into a 1.5 billion parameter neural network. It can then generate text in response to a prompt. You can check out some articles it wrote for The Economist and The New Yorker, though take those with a grain of salt. Those publications generated multiple different versions of those articles and only selected the best ones to put in the paper. But GPT-2 is still a very impressive feat. It is often able to generate internally coherent, stylistically interesting, human-sounding text. But sometimes it makes clear that it has no idea what it's talking about. The cognitive scientist Gary Marcus demonstrated this by asking GPT-2 to complete simple sentences. Marcus inputted the following. Yesterday, I dropped my clothes off at the dry cleaners and have yet to pick them up. Where are my clothes? To which GPT-2 replied, At my mom's house. While this is a grammatically sensible and coherent response, any human immediately recognizes it as wrong. That's because, unlike GPT-2, humans have an internal model of the world being described, one that is aware of what it means to drop clothing at the dry cleaners, and an ability to reason logically. We are not mere word prediction machines that use statistics to generate novel sentences. We are humans with complicated minds capable of representing worlds. Another issue here is the sheer amount of data and resources that are required to train neural networks. Billion-parameter neural networks and learn-from-scratch programs like AlphaZero require immense amounts of computational power. Computers require a lot of energy, and energy is a massive source of climate emissions. One calculation recently showed that some generative language systems like GPT-2 can produce the same amount of carbon emissions as the lifetime of five cars. But 
you might reply. Doesn't it take just as much, if not far more, energy to train a human person to be able to generate language? Don't we expend massive resources to raise and educate humans to be able to use language, identify images, and write well? And that objection is completely correct. Maybe this massive data-driven approach is somehow necessary to develop computers that are able to one day think and reason flexibly like people. But is that worth the climate cost? These are still open questions that the research community is grappling with. Let me discuss one final problem with our current AI systems. They are very bad at doing things that aren't the tasks they were trained on, even if it's only a small variant on that task. For instance, AlphaZero can be trained to be the best chess player in the world in only two days of self-play. But imagine that I then present AlphaZero with a chessboard of reduced size, six squares by six squares instead of eight by eight, where the bishops have been removed. Could it play? Not without retraining, it couldn't. The system would have no idea what to do with this new board. A human, by contrast, would immediately be able to play because humans have abstract representations of the rules of chess independent of any particular board configuration. Of course, AlphaZero could easily be retrained on this new bishop-free system and quickly beat any human. Incidentally, this style of chess is often called Los Alamos chess because it's the variant that scientists at Los Alamos used in the 1950s since the early computers didn't have enough memory to store a full chessboard. Similarly, if you take a reinforcement learning system that's been trained to play a game like Pong or Brick Breaker or Breakout, which involves moving a paddle in one dimension along a screen, and then take that paddle and simply move it up by one pixel, the system no longer has any clue what it's doing. What we see here is that so-called deep learning systems are only deep in the sense of having many layers of mathematical transformations. Their actual understanding is paper-thin. After being trained on reams of data or given the ability to play against themselves, they are able to achieve their goals extremely effectively, oftentimes more effectively than humans. But these domains are still extremely narrow. Another issue is that it's very difficult to see why a neural network made a particular decision. Since a neural network's outputs are based on distributing inputs across millions of nodes, there is no transparency into what's going on inside. This problem is often called interpretability or explainability, and will be discussed in a future lecture, along with some other issues with current machine learning systems, like their capacity to amplify bias. So, what's missing? What makes human cognition so special? Fortunately for us, philosophers, psychologists, and the entire field of cognitive science has been working away on this very problem for decades, if not centuries. 
Perhaps we can use their insights to build computers that learn and think like people. Part 4. It's just common sense. Do you mind grabbing me that bowl? You were able to effortlessly understand that sentence. It probably seems like a fairly simple sentence. Every word was easy. You probably could have heard it and understood it at age four. Let me say it again. Do you mind grabbing me that bowl? But now, imagine you were a complete blank slate who knew nothing about the English language, the world, and bowls, and I had to explain this sentence to you. Let's do it. First, do you mind? What is that? What I'm really asking is for you to do something for me, a favor, a task. But I say, do you mind? Which implies that the answer to this question is either, yes, I do mind, or no, I don't. Okay, clearly there's some ambiguity there. How about, grab me that bowl? Grabbing me? What is that? I'm not asking you to grab me. I'm asking you to grab the bowl. Well, I mean, you don't actually have to grab the bowl, necessarily. You just have to somehow get the bowl and bring it to me. If I get the bowl, I mean that the bowl is somewhere, maybe on a shelf, maybe it's sitting right in front of you, and you need to put it into your hand somehow and bring it to me. But I didn't say that. I said, grabbing me the bowl. And even then, the bowl. How do you even define what a bowl is? A round thing that can store liquids? How precisely, specifically, in terms a computer can understand, is a bowl different from a cup, a vase, an urn, a ramekin, a dish, a pot, a saucepan? Where do the boundaries lie? I want you to really consider how vast the quantity of knowledge that's embedded in this one sentence. It truly boggles the mind. Now, imagine what it would be like to somehow program all of this information into a computer. I can't even begin to fathom it. Even our most sophisticated image recognition software, it's only capable of determining what is in an image. When a computer vision system sees an image of a full wine glass midway between a table and the floor, It can't tell you what preceded this, what's going to happen next, or the sheer dread that this image and situations like it have caused so many people in the past. There are many ideas I'm discussing at once here, so let's slow down and take stock. One of the key ideas here is common sense, the basic ability to perceive and assess everyday situations. Another is causality, the capacity to understand that events have antecedents and actions give rise to reactions. Another is analogy, the ability to draw parallels between seemingly unlike situations. Another still is emotion. The list goes on and on and on. To date, These are qualities that are not yet present in our computers, but they are the backbone of human cognition. Humans are not born into this world with an understanding of what a bowl is, or that to grab can sometimes mean to bring. 
but we are born with frameworks that enable us to learn about space, time, and actions. The person who has thought the most about this is probably the cognitive psychologist Elizabeth Spelke, who has written extensively about the core knowledge that all humans have at birth. We are imbued with the ability to reason about numbers, places, forms, and shapes, and understand the difference between active agents, inanimate objects, and social beings. On top of this core knowledge, we build our systems of morality, our concepts of number and mathematics, and our rules and norms for social relationships, and so much more. Needless to say, it is extremely difficult to translate these ideas into code. Many people have tried. For instance, the computer scientist Judea Pearl has spent his entire life working on a calculus of causality, and many researchers are now working on implementing into computers the ability to come into the world with prior beliefs and update those beliefs in light of experience. But in all of these endeavors, we are still very much in the early days. And what about common sense? The most important thing to know about common sense is that it's not common at all. In fact, and I used this line in the previous lecture, but I'll say it again, easy things are very hard. Most things we consider common sense must be learned through experience and integrated into our pre-existing structures of knowledge. And one of the most important lessons from AI in the last 50 years is that encoding this common sense knowledge in a machine is unbelievably difficult. There has been one continuous effort in effect to create common sense knowledge in a machine, and it's called Psyche, spelt C-Y-C, created by Doug Lynette in 1984. The past 45 years have seen an absolutely Herculean effort on the part of the programmers to capture facts about psychology, politics, economics, biology, and many, many other subjects, all in a precise, logical form. What we're talking about here is doing that exercise I described above about grabbing me a bowl, but in these vast domains of human knowledge. Sadly, the outcome of psych has not been convincing. There is very little published literature about it, and there have been very few commercial applications. Many people regard it as a total failure. Some philosophers have even gone further than just common sense and made the assertion that AI is unable to think like a human because AI does not have a body. The most notable proponent of this line of reasoning is Herb Dreyfus, who was a persistent thorn in the side of the AI research community for 40 years. Dreyfus's critique, in fact, went much deeper than just this. He argued that AI researchers were doomed to fail because their central assumption, that cognition could be understood using symbolic and mathematical expressions, was fundamentally flawed. We will speak more about Dreyfus's critique in a later lecture. It's possible to take away from this story a conclusion like this. 
Implementing the ideas from cognitive psychology and common sense reasoning is hard. Every time we've tried, we've had few successes. By contrast, every time we've tried to train bigger neural networks on more data, it's worked. One way to express this sentiment comes from a potentially apocryphal quote from computer scientist Frederick Jelinek, who is rumored to have said, Every time I fire a linguist, the performance of our speech recognition system goes up. On the flip side, it's clear that our current computer systems are good at specific tasks that require a lot of data and training, immense computer power, and lie in narrow domains. Fortunately for the software engineers of the world, many, many, many tasks can be solved in this way. But there are many more that potentially can't. Take self-driving cars, for instance. Driving is about far, far more than just finding lines on the road and staying within them. Consider the problem of detecting a stop sign. A stop sign can be vertical, sideways, red or white, or obscured by a tree, broken in half, coming out of a school bus, blocked by a school bus, or held by a crossing guard. A stop sign can be attached to a sign that says no left turn, no right turn, or right turn only, or yield to oncoming traffic. Any of these sub-signs can be obscured or broken. Imagine writing a computer program that can interpret the letters E-X-T-R-G-U-N blocked by a tree as except right turn. What's more, these stop signs can be in a two-way, three-way, or four-way intersection, so now you have to pay attention not only to the sign in front of you, but to all the other signs around the rest of the road, each of which could be blocked or obscured or broken in the ways I've described. I'll stop here, but I could go on. It is frankly hard to see how this task is possible with big data alone. At some point, these systems will have to have something resembling the human visual system with the ability to make common sense inferences. Fortunately, today's AI researchers are employing a wide variety of methods to tackle these problems from many angles. While the hype cycle in the news is mostly just filled with deep learning, there is also being research done in causality, Bayesian reasoning, novel forms of logic, and more. And funding agencies are recognizing the importance of interdisciplinary methods. DARPA, still one of the primary funders of AI research, recently kicked off a program that brings cognitive scientists and machine learning experts together to build hybrid models of computer common sense. There is still much uncertainty on the horizon. Are we bound to be in continuous hype cycles with AI, moving from summer to winter in an endless loop, with major breakthroughs coming at each stage but getting no closer to a computer that is truly intelligent like a human being? Is it even possible to build a computer that thinks like a human does? 
Can we take the stuff of neurons, glia, and gray matter and implement it in silicon? Or is there something special about the human brain that means that its inner workings will never be replicated in electronics? For that matter, will we ever build a computer that is conscious, that can experience emotions, feel pain, and have the feeling of I, a sense of self? We will address some of these questions in the eighth and final week of class, though you are welcome and invited and strongly encouraged to start thinking about them right now. In the meantime, let me distill some of the key ideas discussed in this lecture. Progress in AI over the last 75 years has been unquestionably impressive. The inventors of the field would be genuinely stunned by the fact that most people, yourself likely included, take translation programs, virtual assistants, game playing, recommendation algorithms, and language-generating models completely for granted. Many of these recent advances have been based on the idea of connectionism, computer programs that mimic, in some way, the neural structure of the brain. But these systems can be brittle, vulnerable to adversarial attacks, and capable of making silly mistakes because they lack true understanding. And understanding is a very difficult thing to come by. It's some combination of common sense, innate core knowledge, and the ability to reason through analogies about time, space, and causality. Computers don't currently have this, and it would likely be foolish to predict if and when they ever will. If we turn back to Alan Turing's question, can computers think? The answer is still unclear. But what is clear is that humans sure can. And what a thrill it is to study our thoughts and the machines built from them.